from the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, back at our microphones, Jocelyn Fontaine, Senior Research Associate for the Urban Institute, www.urban.org, talking about families and reentry. Jocelyn, welcome back to D.C. Public Safety. Thanks for having me. Okay, there are three projects that you have been involved in, and I'm going to read very quickly um, uh, about them. Safer Return uh, was a research program uh, in Chicago uh, that you published findings this past July. Uh, Part of it was engaging families, uh, and that was one of the core goals of the program. You've also done research on responsible fatherhood reentry projects and promising and innovative practices for children of incarcerated parents. So you're one of the few researchers who have really looked at families and reentry. Absolutely. Uh, I think that there is a growing interest in the families and in particular the children that are left behind as Mm -hmm. a result of the incarceration of men and women, recognizing that many folks who are behind prison walls leave families and children behind who must uh, suffer the burden of their uh, family members' loss, which includes both emotional uh, and financial uh, challenges for them. So there has been an interest among law large set of uh, government providers or government agencies, rather, as well as foundations, in really looking at the importance of families um, in the reentry process and their own unique uh, needs uh, and doing um, a range of research and evaluation projects to understand how we can better meet the needs of families who are left behind as a result of incarceration, as well as what we can do to bring family members and children into the reentry process uh, to better help men and women get back on their feet when they come back to the community. You know, it's interesting. I've interviewed probably a hundred individuals caught up in the criminal justice system uh, by these microphones and on television shows over the course of 20 years. And when they talk about their parents, when their parents were incarcerated, um, that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the background, because for many of them, they had strained relationship with their parents. Uh, they needed their parents in their lives. And, and that was a common theme throughout. It didn't matter uh, what happened. It didn't matter about the agreements or the disagreements or the frustrations of growing up in families that are struggling. Um, They all needed contact with their mothers and fathers. I appreciate you saying that because uh, that's what we find in our research as well. We've done uh, dozens um, of interviews and focus groups with formerly incarcerated persons or individuals, um, you know, who are in the community, asking them about their family relationships, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty extensive focus group conversations with them. Um, And we've also done them from the perspective of family members as well, asking about what it's like to have someone who's behind bars and what it's like to support them when they come home. And we hear from both sides that, yes, there are these feelings of shame and stigma. Uh, Often there are strained relationships uh, felt by, by both sides, family members as well as the incarcerated person um, due to a number of issues, but recognizing that they need each other in order to, um, you know, feel whole um, emotionally, as well as um, from the folks who are coming back from prison and jail, they need their family members in order to get back on their feet. Uh, We find uh, through um, uh, numerous research studies that individuals are most likely to live with their family members on the first night that they're home from prison or jail, and Mm -hmm. that makes sense. We're all 
else are they going to go? So they really need them. And so it really makes a lot of sense for providers, service providers, as well as parole agents or parole uh, departments um, uh, that are in this space uh, to recognize the importance of families, to do as much as they can to support families. Uh, it is a low-cost vehicle, or it's free, you mm-hmm. know, in a lot of sense, uh, to provide them support um, because those individuals are there. And the more supported family members feel, um, the more support that they can extend to family members uh, that were incarcerated. And when I say support, I don't just mean, you know, monetarily. I mean emotionally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so family members who can have outlets to talk about what it's like to be a family member of an incarcerated person and what it's like in um, supporting them, uh, those kinds of things can go a long way um, to furthering the reentry process, uh, again, from individuals who are coming back from prison and jail, as well as for the family members themselves who are part of this process. Out of all the research, what's the most important finding regarding families and reentry? Was that just it, that the fact that they need each other? Uh, the fact that they need each other, but I would also say an important finding is just that family members are also strained, and they need services and support, too. Uh, so work that we've done in Chicago um, in high-density reentry neighborhoods, meaning you know neighborhoods that are dealing with a lot of poverty, a lot of crime, a lot of disadvantage. Um, the family members who are there, who have an incarcerated person in um, their life, who they're supporting, need a lot of stuff, too. So we find um, really high rates of poverty among them, really low educational attainment. So um, not a lot of them have you know graduated high school or gone beyond that. A lot of them have really fractured, limited um, employment histories as well. And those are the individuals who now need to support someone who's coming out of prison with a lot of challenges, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it really knocks me in the gut, actually, all the time when I look at that data just to see how disadvantaged family members are with the knowledge that they also now need to support individuals who also have disadvantages. Sure. Um, so I think that there's a, a lot of space um, for service providers to recognize that um, we are very much um putting, um, you know, additional, and I don't want to say burdens because uh, family members do it willingly, but we're putting a lot on family members to support individuals coming back from incarceration who themselves need a lot of stuff as well. They need education. Mm-hmm. They need employment. Um, some of them are dealing with substance abuse history. Some of them are dealing with their own criminal justice histories um, and are now needing to support a, re- a returning citizen. We're now having a national conversation through the president of the United States who is now visiting various locations throughout the country talking about the reentry process. Uh, the reentry process has its good points and its bad points. Uh, research has not been overly encouraging in terms of the rate of reduction, uh, in terms of recidivism. There have been, in some cases, some fairly decent rates of, of, of recidivism reduction, uh, but both don't. So we in the criminal justice system come together and say, what is that factor? What is that issue that we can use to our best advantage that we haven't been using? And I think a lot of us come to the conclusion that the family member, uh, the family, the overall family needs to come to the assistance of that individual. If they don't, it considerably uh, increases the chances for the person not doing well. Yeah. 
everyone needs support, right? Right. Uh, if we think about, uh, you know, ourselves, you know, uh, after just going through uh, an incarceration experience uh, on our first night home, who would we rely on? We mm-hmm. would rely on our family members and our friends. And there's some share of folks who don't have those social support networks. Um, uh, and so that's when we see programs, reentry programs, reentry service providers kind of providing that um, social support network for folks. Uh, but for others who are fortunate, who have mothers, who have sisters, uh, who have intimate partners, it is very often women who are providing that support, mm-hmm. um, then those families uh, need uh, support as well um, and uh, need to have uh, as much at their disposal um, by the way of understanding what resources exist, uh, how can they support or facilitate more successful reentry. Um, so just a better understanding of what it's like, how they can support individuals, what resources are in the community, I think is really critical um, to strengthening that support that sure. family members already provide. But there's a certain point where we recognize that we within the criminal justice system are probably going to be the frontline troops in terms of interacting between that person coming out of the prison system and their families. Here within Washington, D.C., within my agency, Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, we have caseloads of 50 to 1. Uh, and we have some of the lowest caseloads in the United States. I talk to my contemporaries throughout the country, and anybody who's listened to this program before knows that I harp on this. They have 150 to 1 caseloads, 250 to 1, 300 ca- uh, individuals to 1. So they're... We have a, a, a paradox because we're asking parole and probation to be an intermediary at times and a facilitator to to somehow, some way come to um, an understanding with family members that they need to support the individual coming out of the prison system. And in many cases, you have strained family relationships. Um, I've had before these microphones um, women caught up in the criminal justice system who routinely tell me that they were sexually abused by a family member uh, or by a a person within the family. Um, You find that uh, families will say, he's stolen from me way too many times. He's not welcome in my home. Mm -hmm. You find the individual coming back and living with his sister, but... Her husband is not exactly thrilled about the individual coming back. So there's a lot of human dynamics that are going on. And somehow, someway, somebody has got to get in between the two parties and say, what can we do to promote this person's successful reentry. Uh, what can we do on our side? What can we do on your side? Correct? Right. Um, well, I think that um, people are coming back from prison are getting services somewhere, right? And so let's just call that group of people outside of whether they're under community supervision, you know, service providers, right? So they're getting hopefully employment services, hopefully some housing service. Some of them are getting substance abuse and treatment services. So that core group of service providers who are interacting um, with the reentry population, all of them need to be cognizant about the importance of families. And When I use the word families, um, perhaps a little bit different than how you were referring to them, 
I mean that broadly defined, right? So it's probably more accurate to just talk about folks' social support network, mm-hmm. recognizing that for some individuals, yeah, it is not appropriate, um, you know, in the case of sexual um, uh, abuse or domestic violence cases that an individual will return to their intimate partner, right? Uh, sometimes moms don't want their sons to come back to their homes because of strained relationships. But Where they can't let them back in because of restrictions on public housing. Public housing, of course. Right. Um, but there is somebody, um, I like to believe, in everybody's life that can be um, part, that is part of their social support network um, that they see as family and that can be included in their reentry process. So that could be uh, friends um, that they've met in the institutions or in the community. It could be mentors. It could be um, the faith community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the point that I'm trying to make is that um, service providers broaden uh, how they think about family and social support to be uh, not just biological family members, but others who are in the individual social support network. And think about the ways in which the services that they are providing can incorporate that broader social support network um, to make sure that they understand, um, you know, uh, the larger context with which people are returning back into. That. What our community supervision officers, known elsewhere as parole and probation agents, what they've told me is that they, because we do plans before they come out of the prison system, mm-hmm. and we interview the families and make sure that, that they're welcomed and what the support network is going to be. Uh, there are issues such as, you know, violence or sexual violence uh, that we have to deal with um, uh, if they are, um, if the parents themselves or the people who that person's going to live with is caught up in the criminal justice system. These are all factors that we've got to go through in terms of that interplay. But what they're telling me is that it takes an enormous amount of time. They say two things. The more, the greater, the larger the social network, the larger support, supportive network, as you've just said, could be uncles, could be a neighbor, could be the faith community. The larger that supportive network, the better he or she is going to do when they come out of the prison system. Is there a way to rally that social support network? And would you please take the person inside your home and would you please provide him with the necessary monetary support in the first couple of months until we can find the individual employment, recognizing full well that our uh, employment statistics are about 50%. And that finding, I find, is not unusual for people under supervision throughout the United States. There's an enormous amount of discrimination against people who are caught up in the criminal justice system. So how do we, as parole and probation agencies, find the time to do those interactions, to do that home plan, to gather the resources, to gather uh, that larger social network together to support that individual when it's that labor intensive, when it's that time intensive. Hmm. So uh, as a person who doesn't do a ton of research on the organizational capacity or structure of parole and probation um, departments, it's difficult for me to identify how they find the time other than to really underscore the importance of it, that mm-hmm. it is a more effective way of doing reentry planning. So as we've discussed, families are there, they're important. Um, yes, it may be labor intensive, but I would still argue that that's one of the more important things that a parole and, pro- or parole and probation 
officers can do. And the more that um, they do this kind of uh, uh, this work, right, this foundational work, I mm-hmm. believe in supporting families, then um, the less that they have to do uh, supervision and monitoring, I would argue. Um, not that that means that they should totally take their eyes off of the ball. Uh, but the point is that um, this is a, uh, an effective way of um, supporting formerly incarcerated persons. And so the logic is if they can do more of this, then that will get them better outcomes in the long run. The other thing that's important to mention, we found this in our safer return demonstration, is that, um, you know, when parole agents know that there are family members there and there's case managers who are also in uh, using family members as part of the reentry process, then that is another kind of eye that they have on formerly incarcerated persons, um, you know, on their on their caseloads, right? So if they feel like someone is perhaps slipping, um, going down, maybe not doing criminal activity, but starting to exhibit behavior that they think that they're going down the wrong path, um, then that's another check-in that they have, right? They can check in with mom or the intimate partner and say, how is, you know, this person doing? How is Len doing? What, you know, additional can I do to, to support him? What can I do to support you? I do want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about the research in Chicago, but we're more than halfway through the program. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Jocelyn Fontaine, Senior Research Associate with the Urban Institute, www.urban.org, talking about families and reentry. Jocelyn, that's exactly what we found because mothers will call and say he's hanging out on the corner again. You need to talk to him. You need to intervene. Um, Fathers will say, look, he's tried to find jobs. I've tried helping him find jobs. And and it validates the job finding experience. Uh, Now, we have to we have to ask for proof of that. But I mean, we have family members who are actively engaged every single day because they don't want to see this individual go back to prison. So you do have cousins, you do have uncles, you do have neighbors, you do have different people who are trying to exhibit uh, and support this individual. And they do contact us when he's not doing well. Yeah. Um, So you're right. They're interested in supporting them. They want good outcomes as well. They want them to stay out of trouble and to stay out of prison. So uh, and if family members feel like uh, parole agents or probation agents support them and feel like they Mm -hmm. want them as part of the um, their processes, then family members would be more likely to interact and engage with them and provide that kind of, you know, quote unquote, additional surveillance or just more information. I just think a lot of us in parole and probation need more training need a greater sense of, of being sensitized to these issues and and the potential uh, for a family. And again, I agree with your definition of family. It's much broader than mom and dad and brother and sister, but um, that if we can broaden that support network, we're going to have less work to do uh, and we're going to have greater numbers of check-ins because family members check in with us all the time. Yeah. And they, and, and, and they bring problems to our attention. So we've got to nip this in the bud right now. Right. Right. And I, 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 you know, I, I saw him doing spice or synthetic drugs the other day. That's not going to work. He's not going to live in my house. You need to talk to this individual. You need to talk to my son and you need to convince him to stop doing this and you need to start testing him yeah. um, for K2 and spice. Because So, so you, we do have those interactions all the time, which is, I think, one of the reasons why our success rate has increased from 63% to 69% uh, who have successfully 
actually completed supervision over the course of the last couple of years because we've done more family intervention. And once again, I'm going to get calls and emails from people in parole and probation throughout the country and go, Leonard, I'm sick and tired of listening to your 50 to 1 caseloads. I have 150 to 1. Yeah. I don't have the time as your folks do to sit down and do this interactive mentoring with this larger family group. I'm really struggling here. So that's always the issue. Research can come along. Or the research community comes along and, and, and says, you know, th- this is probably the way to go. This is probably a fairly decent idea. Um, boy, we wish we had the resources that you folks in D.C. have to, to, to do these sort of things. So I, I, I've got to acknowledge that frustration. So if I could, just to insert yeah, um, some of the lessons that we've learned from the Safer Return demonstration. Oh, heavens, yes, because that's what I want to talk about. Now. Yeah, yeah. Which um, So Safer Return included a lot of things. It was based on um, a lot of work that we had done uh, working with practitioners um, and the research community to identify what are the best and promising practices to support um, uh, prisoner reentry or prisoners coming back from prison um, or individuals coming back from prison. And uh, it included uh, job training, uh, mentorship, um, and a host of other things. But what I wanted to highlight in the context of the conversation that we're, we're having right now is one of the core components of it was a strong partnership with uh, parole agents and the program. Mm-hmm. So the program uh, case managers were using uh, family-inclusive case management practices. They had been trained in how to um, use a broad definition of family to incorporate them in the case management process for uh, the individual participant, uh, but they were also supposed to extend their case management to include parole agents so that parole and the case managers for the program were doing this, what they called co-case management, which just means they were teaming up together yes. to, to have a... So these were social service providers, not parole and probation agents. Yes. The social service providers were teaming up with parole and probation yes. agents. Okay. Yes. And one of the great findings of Safer Return is that it did reduce um, uh, 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 reincarcerations due to parole violations relative to a comparison group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also was uh, successful in getting more people jobs, uh, more jobs, um, higher wages, and they got those jobs quicker relative to a comparison group. And we really feel, um, you know, based on this finding, that it really demonstrates the importance of parole and practitioner partnerships. Mm -hmm. And in this case, you know, it was safer return case managers, but in other cases, it's just other folks who are providing the other social services um, uh, for reentry. And so uh, we strongly encourage, based on this finding, that parole agents um, make these connections with the service providers who are doing reentry stuff. So Mm -hmm. it could be a housing provider, it could be an employment provider, it could be an education provider. Um, to get this more comprehensive perspective of individuals, to have another check on the person, Mm -hmm. uh, to say, you know, how are they doing? And both of them uh, using their position, the parole agent as the, what do they have, right? They have the, they have the, um, the stick, right? Um, And the program folks with the carrot, like this is what you get, um, as two, you know, complementary perspectives um, and a way to to get individuals to move forward and to be more successful. And it dovetails very nicely with the research on cognitive behavioral therapy where you engage the individual coming out of the prison system in such a way that that, that the person opens up. Yeah. Uh, That the person, it's really a two-way conversation between two people rather than the the coppish uh, in the past 
um, parole and probation agent who is there to revoke you when you've reached that point, and and that individual tries to get into the heart, get into the mind of the that individual, because that's the only way you're going to find out about the fact that yes, I'm living with my sister, but her husband is not appreciative of my being there. You're not going to get to that point unless you are able to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation, unless you can break down the barriers, because most people caught up in the criminal justice system don't look at us as as people who they really want to talk to. They, right. they look at us as at the possibility of people who can send them back to prison. Yeah. So, you know, doing cognitive behavioral therapy, getting involved in the life of that individual, finding out what their issues are, and once you find out what the issues are, then you can talk to the husband and say, how can we work together on this? Yeah, yeah. And talking with the organizations, the individuals who are providing other services for them, you know, is another way to just get greater perspective on folks because they may not be willing, they're probably not willing to tell their parole agent when they're struggling, but they may be telling their case manager. And we certainly wouldn't argue that that's what the parole agent should use in order to revoke the person, but it would give them a better, a greater understanding of what some of their challenges are and provide greater context, we believe, in, um, you know, probation and parole planning and supervision as well. There are 7 million people caught up in the criminal justice system on any given day, 7 million individuals. Um, Five are on community supervision. So they're under the auspices of parole and probation agencies throughout the country. That's just an enormous amount of people. We're not talking about juveniles in this, and we're not talking about the jail population, I think, in this. We're talking about um, principally 5 million people under adult parole and probation supervision, overwhelming numbers of people. Um, the return to prison rate, um, according to the Department of Justice, has been two-thirds rearrested, one-half go back to prison. Um, governors throughout the country are basically saying we've got to get better rates of return. Uh, people on both sides of the political aisle are basically saying we've got to do better right. in terms of not sending people back to prison to stabilize them, do as much as humanly possible. Um, the governors are screaming bloody murder because they're saying our correctional budget is the second most costly item within their budget. Uh, they So they're turning the and probation and saying, look, you've got to do better. Yep. And one of the things that we are suggesting, I think, through this program and a television show, and I'll put this in, in the um, uh, show notes, the link to the television show that we did on uh, what we called at that point family reunification, uh, was that unless you involve pro-social elements in the community, you're not going to get better rates of return. Right. That's right. That's right. And... You know, to the extent, and it's, this is certainly the case in Illinois, that uh, returns to reincarceration are largely as a result of violations of, you know, the community sur- supervision, that is, right, people mm-hmm. violating their parole, then if we can make uh, some meaningful um, changes in the way parole departments uh, engage with families, engage with other social service providers, right, to reduce those technical violations, um, then we can have meaningful reductions mm-hmm. in the reincarceration rate, which translates into significant cost savings. There's a story out of out of um, um, Baltimore County. I'll mention the county uh, when I was with the state of Maryland for 14 years. And the guy comes out of the prison system and the wife accepts him back inside 
the house, and they're trying to make a go of it. Um, we were trying to help them adjust to each other, and he's doing pretty good. He's doing, being a good husband, being a good father, going to work, uh, and he was doing all the things we asked him to do, but he kept pulling positives from marijuana. Yeah. Um, so the we're up to five, and we're concerned, and then we're now we're to ten, and now we're approaching twenty. Uh, what we did was to arrange for a family intervention. Um, you know, the parole and probation agent in the state of Maryland was not successful in terms of reading this individual, the riot act. He was doing so well that he wanted to celebrate. Yeah. And we were saying, but you can't celebrate through substance abuse. Right. Um, we had the family confront him and it was an emotional event, tearful event, and he stopped. So that's the power. Yes of the family versus the limited power of the criminal justice system. Our ability as people, um, parole and probation folks, um, to convince people to look at life differently is very limited compared to what their mother can do, what their father can do, and what their cousins can do, and what their neighbors can do. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a tremendous story. Uh, Thanks for sharing it. And it's possible because in that case, Uh, you were willing to involve the family, uh, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Otherwise, if they were just constantly testing dirty, um, then you'd be more likely to violate them, right? Because you have no other lens, uh, no other kind of way to to bring them around to changing their behavior, uh, really feeling like there's no other option other than to send them back to prison. Uh, But when you um, know that there's family members there, know that you can use them to kind of bring the individual around, then... uh, feeling like there's more options other than I just have to violate this person because, you know, I see no other options, no other opportunities, and no other way to get them to change their But behavior. had the person gone out and committed a violent crime, um, and somebody said to the media, oh, by the way, he had 20 drug violations within six months, um, then the newspaper headline would be parole and probation fails. Um, so that's the other part of this. And so getting families involved early. Yes, is the key to possibly mitigating some of these technical violations that come along. So it's not just getting them involved, but getting them involved at the very beginning of the process. Absolutely. I All think right. that's right. It's a fascinating conversation. Jocelyn Fontaine, Urban Institute, www.urban.org, www.urban.org, talking about families and reentry. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We really appreciate your comments, and we even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day.